Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you this morning. I've got my non-tech copy there. Just in case technology fails, you can always jump to it. Anyway, that's my little secret for you this morning. Um, my name is James. Nice to meet you if I haven't, or at least I'd like to meet you if I haven't, rather. Um, I'm part of the team here at Campbell Street, and it's my honour this morning to have a look at this passage that was read out. And as it was read out, I realised, wow, there's some, there's some serious points being said there, even though obviously I read that in lead up to today, but I think there's some really powerful but really somber tone there. Anyway, I'm going to walk through all of it. I'm also going to go through to verses 22, so a little bit beyond that, but then I'll stop before the end of the chapter um, and I'll explain why. Let me start by saying Simon and I, every week we go and play tennis. We love it. It's our, I don't know, it's our time. We just go and we have a hit and we relax and we catch up. But every week I come out with a loss. Every week I pour my heart into this game and it just does not deliver and I come out with a loss. And like by a significant margin too, it's, it's embarrassing, but it's good for me to be honest about it. And so at one point I thought, you know what? I need to go, I need to get help. Like, I need to sort this out. This is not, something's happening week in, week out, and it's not good enough. And so Anna said, hey, there's this coach in Balmain, coaches tennis, maybe he can help you out. So I did. I reached out to him, and I said, I need a few lessons ASAP. My colleague is taking me down, and I'm not all right about it. And so now I have. I've done a handful of lessons with him. And why I share that is because it's so helpful to have this moment where you can recall or at least look back over your play look back over what's working and what isn't, and get help for it, and to adjust and learn from it. And same with, I'll talk about this briefly, technology in sport, which is, tends to be controversial, but essentially now we're in an age where everything's recorded, isn't it? And so how you perform or whatnot is, is there on the big screen, slowed down for you too, and you can look back over it and see what worked and see what didn't. I've got some photos actually. In particular, I think about athletics, right? So there it is. It's up on the big screen. It's recorded for you just like this. And a lot of professional athletes now, this is, this is a significant part of their training, is they would sit down, they'd see what was recorded, and they'd work it out. What was working and what wasn't. And to learn from it. To take it on board and to make sure the next time they're out there racing, they're finishing first. Oh, I actually don't know why I included It's probably more work than it's worth explaining what's happening here, but essentially this is technology being able to work out who's landing first. And so in the same way, Paul starts this chapter giving us a replay, a recount of what's happened for God's people, for Israel. What God's people did then, and he does it for the sole purpose of Corinth, the letter he's, the church he's writing to, and for us have an opportunity to make sure we don't make the same mistakes, to learn from the past, to learn from what's working and what isn't, and to make sure we readjust, to not fall into the same traps they did and have done before. So it's here that Paul inserts himself, in this moment where history is feeling so tempted right now to repeat itself. He intervenes in order to lay a foundation of warnings for his hearers and for us so that they might set their lives on the faithfulness of God 
and to move forward into a life running from idols and taking part in Christ and only Christ. And so there's three places I want to go today. I got quite creative with it, so I hope you don't mind. Verses 1 to 12, we're going to look at on your marks. This is taken up from the athletics imagery I was showing you before. On your marks, get set from 12 to 13, and then go. On your marks, we'll look at the history of Israel and the foundation it offers. Get set, we'll look at how we are to establish ourselves in God's faithfulness, in his providence, in what he provides, and go, the call to run from idols and to live in Christ. So that's where we'll go this morning, and I'll pray for us just before we do. Father, I thank you that your word is here, and sometimes it feels uncomfortable, but thank you that it is important that we know our Bibles, that we know what you've done in the past, what we've done in the past as people, so as to learn from it and make sure we walk in a direction towards your faithfulness and live lives in light of that, in thankfulness to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Simon also took us through just last week what it looks like to have freedom as believers, to love and serve others and to save others even, which is what Paul does in the end of this chapter and he he reiterates it, he comes back to it. So I actually won't spend time there today. I'm going to spend time in this first part of it up to verses 22 like I mentioned Point one, on your marks. Paul starts, I hope you've got a Bible with you too, because I will keep coming back to it and referring to it. So verse one, Paul starts by taking us back to Israel, like I mentioned, so that we recognize all that they had and yet where they ended up. Verse one, I do, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, he says, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were... And I'll stop there. He then goes on to detail, they were under a cloud, they passed through the sea, I hope you can see that there, they were led by Moses, they were spiritually filled by God's word and direction. So they were saved by God through the sea, they were in the presence of God through the cloud, they were provided by God through Moses and the spiritual food and drink. Paul's emphasis here in these first few verses is that they had it all going for them, didn't they? They were guided, led, satisfied, and even accompanied. Have a look at that in verse 4. It says, accompanied by Christ. Now quickly, maybe you're startled by the fact that Paul is mentioning Christ and his accompaniment all the way, way back then in Israel. But let me show you quickly why some, where people go to validate this. In Exodus, this is the moment... Israel is on their way to the promised land. He says, behold, I am going to send an angel before you. This is God speaking to Moses. To guard you along the way and bring you into the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him, for he will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. This is peculiar. And remember, it's only God that can forgive sins. So people do look back to this verse for an insight. But regardless, look at what Paul says here in Colossians. Whether we can confirm Christ's presence then, we know very well that it was there in the beginning. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
That's Christ. Ultimately, Christ's accompaniment is showing God's provision for his people. And yet, something still went very wrong, didn't it? They had all this going for them, and yet something went wrong. Verse 5 and 6, come with me. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them, with most of them rather, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Paul continues, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. There it is. That's why we look back. That's the purpose of knowing our Bibles and being able to be familiar with what we've been as a people towards God. And this is why athletes also, they look back over their run so that they can see the mistakes they made in the past and to keep, and to keep us now from setting our hearts on evil. That's what Paul says, as they did. It's important, Campbell Street, that we have the right foundations going forward. That we have the right blocks under our feet. That we recognise all that we had as the people of God, but all that we have today, and yet still the mistakes they made. And it's also that we don't do the same. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us today with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have every spiritual blessing, even more than Israel had. And so I want to keep moving along. Israel, what we've seen is the blessings Israel had, but now let's look at the problems. Let's look at what they fell into. Verse 7 to 10. Read with me. Verse 7 talks about, do not be idolaters. That's what Paul says here. And that's what, they were problem, that, that's what Israel's problems were. Verse 7, do not be idolaters. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality. Verse 9, we should not test Christ. Verse 10, do not grumble. And all of them had serious consequences, didn't they? They were scattered, ultimately. And Paul reiterates it in verse 11. He says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul is stressing just how important it is that we today don't get complacent. That we don't get complacent in these last days after Christ, that we've been given so much in God, and yet that we don't drift off into idolatry and self-obsession, just like Israel does, did, and just like we're tempted to do, but that we remain thankful and that we remain close to God. And yet God's faithfulness continued, didn't it, despite our rebellion, despite our rejection of him. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there's a book in the Old Testament called Hosea. And it's an incredible book. And it's where Paul likens Israel to that of an unfaithful spouse. And no matter how many times Hosea's wife runs off to be with someone else, God calls Hosea to continue to pursue her, to continue to commit to her. And in the same way, same way Israel was running off to be with other idols, God continues to commit to his people 
and he continues to commit to us. Let me read this verse from Hosea. I, this is God, I will commit myself to you forever. I will commit myself to you in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and tender compassion. I will commit myself to you in faithfulness. Then you will acknowledge the Lord. This is the one we're called to commit to and commit to exclusively. It's the one who's fully committed to us first. Just like an athlete at the start of a race, we must have the right blocks in place in order to get the best start. And for us, we must learn what Israel did. We must learn from the markers of the past in order to have the best start going forward, in order to run this race of faith. And so I want you to come with me. Point two. We look at get set. Beautiful picture of Usain there, very much set. Verse 12, we had it read out before. If you think, in the kids' talk, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation, no temptation rather, has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. This is what Paul says. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I always, whenever I read that verse, I always think of Claire, my daughter Claire. Whenever she is focused, she moves well. It's incredible, just like Usain Bolt, I'd say. But as soon as she's distracted, she becomes, I don't know, overconfident, and it isn't long before she's head over heels. It's just always the case. She just gets on her high horse. And similarly, Claire knows which drawer in our house is the snack drawer. It's dangerous. I don't know why we have We should keep moving it around, love. She knows which one's the snack drawer, and this baby has zero self-control, let me tell you. I hope you don't mind my baby example, by the way. You can tell what world Anna and I are in. But, but it's constant. As soon as the snack drawer's in sight, Claire, she, she ever so slightly like, shifts her orbit. She might be heading on down the hall and she sees the snack drawer and her direction shifts. Just one degree, she ends up just turning right back and running straight into this drawer and getting completely sucked in. And I share that because Paul addresses Corinth here. And he says, you're not getting drawn in by anything unique here. It's the same things humans have always found difficult. And how relatable is that comment about standing firm, or at least I felt so. When things aren't going well, we tend to be more focused. And, and I'd say even as Christians, more dependent on God. But when things are smooth sailing, it's then that... It's then that we become more independent. It's then that we become less reliant, less focused, more complacent, and typically that's the recipe for falling over. For me, the temptation that comes to my mind in the good times when things are going well is the temptation to think that my efforts, my actions, my hard work, that's actually what got me here. Yeah, God may have kicked it off, but ultimately it was what I did that's really got me into this position. That thought creeps in, if I'm honest. And if I don't reorientate, it take that, and I don't take captive that thought, it soon becomes a belief for my life. And it becomes the backbone of how I live, which I want to say eventually leads to a really mighty fall. 
We need to be people, Campbell Street, that get set, who stay set on the dependence, uh, independence on God, that we remain steady on God because God is the one who is faithful, who provides. Come with me, verse 13. Paul says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Again, even as I read this, I get tempted to think that this verse is meant to be a metric. Almost, I want to reverse engineer or reverse process this verse, a way of delineating what I can bear, what I can and can't bear, trying to work it out. But I think the focus here is, is God. The focus is God's faithfulness. The focus is God's provision. Our assurance isn't in what we can bear. Our confidence is in that God's providence was true for Israel and is true for us today. He provides a way out. And like Claire with the snack drawer, as soon as our focus shifts from, from God's faithful character to our own effort, it's a matter of time before we fall, before we get sucked in. We must get set in believing in God's faithfulness, in knowing God's providence and remaining set on how dependable and how trustworthy God really is. And it is from this place, once we're set in this place, then we can go. Come with me to point three, go. After we learn from our mistakes, after we set our focus on God, it is only then that we can go. Only then that we can, verse 14, run from idolatry. Verse 14 says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Paul then details, are we not unified? Are we not one because we share in the same loaf like we did today? Verse 17. The death and resurrection of Jesus is why we come together. That's what unites us. We participate, we belong to each other and to God. So how can we compartmentalise our lives so as to worship God on Sunday but worship ourselves or something else throughout the week. No, we're called to flee, to run from idols. And we're called to do this together as one body. And so I want to ask you, how are we helping one another stand firm in Christ? How are we helping one another run from the things that we're tempted to worship, be it a successful career? A good buffer in the bank. A spacious, maybe a constantly renovated home. A lavish holiday, a comfortable and uninterrupted life. All of these things are temptations, aren't they? And they can very easily become idols. Because these are the gods that our world worships. And unashamedly too. People will sell their souls to gain these type of things, this in their world. But you know what Jesus says to that, don't you? He says they'll end up losing it all. It'll lead to a mighty fall. Now, as I mention these things, maybe you think, at least I do, they're not all bad, are they? 
the things I've mentioned aren't altogether bad. But, what, but I want to ask, is it clear to the people who see your life that you're actually not chasing after them like they might be? Is it clear that the most precious thing to you is your relationship with God? That you would be willing to forgo everything if it were to mean that all you have is Christ? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus says. Now, money is just one area, isn't it? That it's easy to idolize, rather. But what about comfort? What about living your life to set it up for your kids, perhaps? There are so many things that are calling for our full, lifelong, devoted attention. But you know what? Idolatry... Immorality, testing Christ, grumbling, they all have one thing in common. And it's me. It's all about us. We idolize something in hope of it improving our lives. We're sexually immoral because we act on our desires. We test Christ because we think we know better. And we grumble because we think we deserve better. It's the premise from it all, isn't it? It's ourselves. Verse 22 in chapter 10 says, Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You know why God hates idolatry and why Paul's so serious about it? Is because it takes us away from God. It takes us away from him. So Paul calls us to go, to run from idolatry and go be a part of Christ. Go be part of Christ's family like we're doing today. And so as we shared in the Lord's Supper, which as Paul shows us here, is a beautiful way of remembering that we are united and together in Christ, we share from the same loaf. Our hope is in the same God. And we take part in the Lord's Supper to show that we're not taking part in anything else, in any other sacrifice, in any idol. In our togetherness, we are called to go. To run from idolatry, and I want to add this, and to go to the nations. I want you to take note of something that was subtle in verse 5. Let me read it to you. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. This is after all, all the good things that had going for them. And look at the result. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, this language of being scattered is bad. It was, God's presence was with his people, and so to be scattered was to be removed from his presence. The aim for the Israelites was to stay together, to be set apart from everything else around them, from all other nations that were serving all different other types of gods, and to remain close to God and his presence. That was the goal. And now in Jesus, the curtain was torn. The Holy Spirit was given and God's presence was no longer subjected to a cloud, to a temple, to a tabernacle. 
It is now wherever there is someone who believes in Christ, there is the presence of God. Being scattered is no longer the problem, but now the goal. No longer are we to be people who stay away from surrounding nations, but people who now go to the nations. And as we go, Jesus promised that he'd be with us to the end of the age. That's what he says in Matthew 28. Let's run from idolatry. Let's run the race of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, as Paul says in Acts 20, 24. But I want to ask you a few questions as we come to a close. We, we have a choice each and every day, don't we? A choice to make Christ the only one we worship. And the Israelites, they were, they were trapped in this, in this vicious cycle of idol worship, punishment, restoration, and then forgiveness. After which they'd start it all over again and head back to idol worship. But it's different for us. Our rejection of God is met with Jesus' punishment resulting in our restoration and God's forgiveness to us. And it leaves us with a choice. To live in thankfulness for what Christ has done or to run to another idol and to move on or to repeat that cycle. I want to ask, how can your life reflect that your love, for thing, love isn't for things in this world but for Christ? Is it evident to your colleagues, perhaps, that your life isn't actually about you, but is about Christ? Is it obvious to your family that you love them more than yourself, and that you love Christ even more so than yourself? Is it clear in your friendships, in your fitness groups, in your, in your attitude, in your response to both the good and difficult times in conversations that you have, is it clear that your life revolves around Christ? Does Christ permeate in every aspect of your life? Would someone meet you perhaps for the first time, or maybe it's a friend you've known for a long time, and would they know that Christ is what you're about, that that's your first love? Now I want to stop for a second and ask, maybe perhaps you hear me talking about Christ being in all things, and you begin to feel guilty. You begin to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing good enough. And I want to catch you really quickly and say, the goal is not guilt in any way. The goal is thankfulness. The goal is a life transformed into an overflow of thankfulness and trust in Christ, who is the one who was good enough then he'll permeate into all aspects of our lives. And if you're here and you're not familiar with church, or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you don't know what you think about any of this that I've spoken about, I want to say to you, God has created you to be with him. That's his goal, that you'd be with him. And in doing so, like we see in this verse, he calls us to leave behind our infatuation with ourselves our obsession with ourselves or our own benefit or our own progress and to follow him, follow him into a life of thankfulness. I'm going to invite Sarah Leslie up to pray.